0: Kind of strange being indoors and standing behind a pulpit. Sunday morning we were outdoors and uh, appreciated that. What a, what a blessing! Appreciate folks that made it out for that and was real exciting. And uh, after three thousand six hundred and two Bible classes, uh, it was my first Sunday not to wear a suit and tie. So it was uh, a little bit of a history-making process out there. But anyway, has anybody driven past Monday, Tuesday, or this morning? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave here after the closing prayer and drive over there and see see what they've done. So, all right. Well, join me in Luke 16 this morning, Luke chapter 16. Let me uh, <clears throat> proceed through the call to worship so you understand this is Bible class this morning. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We have uh, completed chapter 15, and we're ready for chapter 16 of the Gospel of Luke, moving from the prodigal son to the, uh, the unjust steward. And in many respects, although we've changed chapters and we've changed venues for the parable, we still continue along a theme that is relating the heavenly joy with earthly activity and heavenly laying up treasures in heaven with earthly activity. And so we're going to expand a bit on what we were dealing with last week and move into financial matters here this week, at least as far as uh, uh, the first portion of this chapter is concerned. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit and uh, Humble under the authority of God's truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for the truth of your word and the <coughs> the privilege we have to assemble together. Thank you for this facility, a warm building in which to sit and study the word of God here today and as uh, we mentioned on Sunday, we're committing to you the entire construction process on the new facility. Father, uh, provide uh, safety for those that are working, and and uh, just a real blessed time. Father, let this be a construction site that stands out in their thinking as particularly uh, smooth and and blessed in every way. Father, let it be a testimony of uh, of your hand of blessing in all that you do. Father, uh, guide our study now this morning. Open our eyes of our understanding, especially in a couple of these verses here that are sometimes a little awkward to try to understand. So uh, give us the understanding. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Yeah, there's a verse here, uh, particularly I think verse 9, that stands out where uh, you're told to uh, to use money to make friends. And uh, people read that and say, is that really what it's saying? Um, Well, we'll talk about it. Unbelievers are better than believers. Did you know that? In certain applications, particularly if it's a worldly application, because we're no longer uh, of this world. We're in the world, but no longer of the world. So for the things of the world, we're a little bit uh, out of our league as far as that goes. And we need to identify that and and recognize it for what it is. So we've got a lot to cover today. We'll start with uh, verse 1, Luke 16. This, by the way, is episode 24 in the Harmony of the Gospels we're using. Episode 24 of The Last Judean and Prian Ministry of Jesus Christ. It is titled Parables of Unjust Steward, Rich Man, and Lazarus. And it's an unfortunate title uh, because there are actually additional teachings in between those two items. The title kind of indicates there's only two things going on in this chapter. And it uh, starts with the unjust steward. It ends with the rich man and Lazarus. But two issues with this title. First of all, There's more than the two episodes in this chapter, because there are things in between. And secondly, I don't believe the rich man and Lazarus episode is a parable. It's not called a parable. And Jesus speaks of it as if it is a true, literal, historical event. And so uh, I'm firmly convinced that it's not a parable. It's not a made-up story, a make-believe story designed to teach a principle. It is a literal, historical event taking place between Lazarus, the rich man, and Abraham, uh, across the gulf there that's fixed within the compartments of uh, of hell. So we'll, we'll be studying that. Uh, I don't anticipate we'll get that far today. If we do, we're in a lot of trouble because my printed notes don't cover that material. <laughs> so I trust we'll be in uh, these early verses, uh, 1 through 18, here uh, this morning. All right, so he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager or a steward—that's the term I'm going to constantly use throughout this passage—is a steward, even if the text uh, translation here has manager. And this manager was reporting to him was reported to him as squandering his possessions. Remember that word, squandering—that's what the the uh, prodigal did with uh, his inheritance. And he called him and said to him, "What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be." Manager. Give an accounting of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And we'll give you all the vocabulary on this here in a moment. So the steward or the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking away the stewardship from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know. What I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he concocts a scheme. All right. Now, this guy is wicked. He's an unbeliever. His thinking is wicked. And everything that he's oriented to is self-preservation mode. So when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and began to say to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Now, we're going, to be, we're going to take some time with this and work our way through it because as we read verses 5 and 6, it just seems like he's, he's, he's a shady guy getting shadier, right? He's underhanded. He's devious and he is getting even more devious in these verses. In other words, he knows he's getting fired, so he's going to steal as much as he can before he goes. He's going to really really stick it to his his uh master. And you're thinking, and that's what you're thinking along this whole process until the master actually praises him in verse 8. And I think if we identify with the praise from the standpoint of the master, and then we get the uh the application from the standpoint of the real master okay the true lord the word here is lord uh so we have the parable lord that praising the unrighteous steward but then we have the lord the true lord jesus christ actually giving us our application i believe it helps us to focus on what this parable actually teaches <clears throat> so the master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. and That's the distinction. Unbelievers versus believers when dealing with the cosmos system. Dealing with their own, their own kind. Consider, you know, the nature of this cosmos and everything reproduces after its kind. We're no longer of that kind. We used to be. And in our moments of darkness and carnality, we can go back to... Um, that mindset, we can return back to that nature, even though when we do so now, it's really contrary to our new nature. Um, Sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. We'll illustrate this and highlight this a little bit more. So I say to you, here's the application. Now I say to you, so parable's over. No longer dealing with the parable, curiosity and the wicked uh, steward, when you get to verse 9, it's now the real kurios, the true kurios, the Lord, speaking to you, the disciples, and you and I in, in, as Bible readers in the New Testament. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. In other words, unbelieving wealth, the wealth of this fallen world. Make friends for yourselves by means of this, uh, the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails... They will receive you into the eternal dwellings. You say, well, what's that about? How's this going to work? Well, relax. We'll uh, we'll take it item by item. And actually, I think if we go through the parable well enough, then it will actually explain itself before we actually get to verse 9. All right. That's as far as I want to take it at this point before getting more detail. Uh, because in verse 10, uh, starting in verse 10, we have some bullet principles that come. In verse 10, dealing with faithfulness. In verse 11, uh, dealing with um, temporal versus eternal wealth. In verse 12, dealing with personal versus uh, the, the rights of others. No servant can serve two masters. So, 10, 11, 12, 13, you got four uh, bullet principles that are given. And uh, we want to be able to handle those one by one. So, let's stop where we are with the reading and after verse 9, come back and get some detail. First of all... Context for chapter 16 is entirely grounded in chapter 15. So if you're following in notes in the outline, point one, the parable from chapter 15 gives way to additional parables and a true illustration. The parable from chapter 15, remember there weren't three parables in chapter 15. There was one parable told three different ways. Uh, Told with a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. There was one parable in Luke 15. It was told three different ways, but it was one parable. And that parable gives way to these additional parables here in chapter 16. The ones that we're going to cover in verses 1 through 18. As well as a true illustration. The rich man and Lazarus in 19 through 31. I'm going to keep calling him the rich man. There's a, an old tradition calls him Dives. Have you ever heard that name? Dives. It, it just comes from the Latin, and it's, that was the Vulgate rendering, or the, the Roman tradition gave him the name of Dives uh and i forget the exact there's an etymology there dives, divestment something there anyway there's a latin expression for dives. in any event i whether that's his name or not who knows i'm just going to keep calling him the rich man i like the way the scripture doesn't give us his name because th- if you think about it those that die and go to hell and go to the lake of fire are gone never to be remembered all right uh, undergoing their eternal destruction Only those that have faith in Jesus Christ have an everlasting name. And in fact, a new name for church age saints uh, is part of the reward factor. And I I like that. So I personally, I have a a bit of a fondness for the sake uh, for the case of Lazarus, knowing his name and the rich man, not knowing, not caring as far as that goes. Well, so the chapter 15 leads into chapter 16. That's what I'm trying to say. Chapter 15, not only does it lead into it, but the concepts relate. Because in chapter 15, you have the idea of an earthly rejoicing that's a reflection of a much greater rejoicing in heaven. That we should rejoice when the lost is found. We should celebrate if a sinner repents and comes to walk in the truth. There's nothing better. It is absolutely a testimony to grace when a sinner repents and gets back uh, oriented to the truth of the word of God. Well, we have it again here. There's earthly activity. There's heavenly activity. It's the heavenly activity that needs to be in focus. We need to be laying our treasures in heaven. We need to be preparing for our eternal fellowship that we're going to have with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the link between them. The word squandering. Squandering gives us our text link between the chapters. In fact, it uh, serves as the bridge between chapter 15 where it it occurs, uh, we spot it up in verse 13, and then uh, where it occurs again in chapter 16 and verse 1. Remember the story of the prodigal son. He took his inheritance, went uh, to a far country, and uh, squandered his estate with loose living. And that squandering principle of what this uh, prodigal son did is what the Lord keys in on when he starts to expand and start to starts to give other parable teaching. It's almost as if he says, oh, and by the way, speaking of squandering, there was a rich man and he had an unrighteous steward who was reported to him as squandering his possessions. I find it interesting, too. Does this passage tell us the unrighteous steward was actually, in fact, squandering the possessions? Passage does not tell us that. The only thing this verse tells us is that it was reported to the rich man that the steward had been squandering the possessions. See? Nowhere does it specifically say in the Holy Spirit-inspired, absolutely true, I believe it, text, that that's what he was doing. But that was the report the manager um, received. And when he demands accountability, the uh, manager is evidently guilty enough in his own thinking that he knows that he uh, is not going to last past the, uh, the accountability stage. He's not going to survive the audit, in other words. So uh, I think it's pretty well observable that even if he wasn't squandering, he had something shady going on. And I believe we're going to see that in uh, the details of the extortion racket he was running on some of these debtors. He was a loan shark. And uh, uh, some of the uh, rates, the exorbitant rates he was charging and milking um, would not have uh, pleased his master in any respect. I, I think that's really the key of why he skipped town as quickly as he did here. So squandering gives us our text link between the chapters. So point B, heavenly rejoicing parallels heavenly reward. Heavenly rejoicing parallels heavenly reward. Chapter fifteen teaches us about heavenly rejoicing. Chapter sixteen teaches us about heavenly reward, and it does so in this first parable, it does so in the subsequent lessons uh, or parables and principles of application in ten through thirteen. It continues to do so in fourteen through eighteen, continues to highlight the importance of heavenly reward, and then in the story of the rich man and Lazarus you have it illustrated. The heavenly reward that begins with the provision of rest and comfort until such time as the uh, uh, resurrection judgments take place and the rewards can be distributed. So heavenly rejoicing parallels heavenly reward. Chapter 15 gives way to chapter 16. The bulk of chapter 16 should orient us to treasures in heaven. We ought to be thinking about laying up our treasures in heaven. We ought to be considering not just here and now and the, the, the loot we can make or the money we can pile up, um, but the there and then. What are we going to do when there is no more money, when there is no more earthly money, when it gives out, we're told here. The expression is uh, when it fails in verse 9. When uh, U.S. dollar is no longer legal tender, because uh, the jurisdiction of the U.S. dollar is confined to the physical territory of planet Earth, and we are in the spiritual dimensions of heaven and glory, Uh, when U.S. dollar currency is no longer a a function in our lives, what treasure do we have? Have we laid up anything on deposit? Is there anything waiting for us there? It's, It's the ultimate eternal layaway program. We need to make sure that our treasures are laid up in heaven. And that's the point he's making in verse 9 when he says this unrighteous steward is illustrating a truth. He himself is not walking in truth, but the way he's living illustrates a truth that we should make application of. Which is main point two in the outline. The unrighteous steward teaches a spiritual truth. The unrighteous steward teaches a spiritual truth. Now, you and I as believers can operate in carnality. We can walk in darkness. We can walk by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. And in doing so, we uh, perform unrighteous deeds, but we cannot be defined as unrighteous people. Does that make sense? You are righteous, positionally, eternally, absolutely righteous. Not because you've earned it, not because you deserved it, but you are in Christ and judicially. Because of imputation, you are righteous. And that is an eternal estate that cannot be changed one tiny little bit. Now, when you're walking in darkness, carnal, out of fellowship, pursuing selfishness, you may be doing unrighteous things, but Scripture does not, nor can anyone else ever call you an unrighteous person at that point of time. You understand that? So the definition here, calling this man an unrighteous steward, um and and giving him that appellation giving him that title tells me uh that he is unregenerate he is he is a son of this age and he is acting shrewdly as is consistent with his uh darkened nature by he's a by nature a child of wrath even as the rest and he's in his element he is like a fish in the water he is in his element and he's thriving this is his domain and yet we're going to learn a lesson by watching him okay does that insult you in any way is it moderately um, offensive? Or is it even a little bit, um, I, I, I think it is a mark of shame sometimes when I look to the heathen and I ask myself why I'm not more like that. You know what I'm talking about? Like how many doors the Mormons knock on. Or how many, uh, how many uh, miles they put on their bicycles. Or how many people they talk to. How many, how many doors the Jehovah's Witnesses talk to All right, they're they're demoniacs. They are they are Satan worshipers uh, prowling the neighborhoods looking for people to convince of their uh, religious convictions. And it bothers me sometimes when I ask myself, uh, what am I doing? What's what's my assignment? Am I uh, am I faithful to what it is I'm called upon to do? Well, here's an unrighteous steward and he has an attitude that we can learn from. And it's an attitude that recognizes that his stewardship is uh, about up. <laughs> okay? You can say in some respects it's done over. It's just he's under a deadline and, and it's, it's imminent that it's gone. All right? And so he has to plan for what's happening after that imminent stewardship is gone. And that's what we're going to learn from. Because we have a stewardship. It's called the Christian way of life. It's called operating in the body of Christ, the church. And when is our stewardship going to be over? It could be today. It could be this hour. It could be this moment if the trumpet sounds. See, I'm ruining everything today because I'm going off my notes. I'm giving you the end of the story ahead of time. But I just want you to see that we're going to learn. We're going to learn from the example of an unrighteous steward. An unbeliever is going to teach us something. And uh, if you, there's actually a lot of things you can learn. We can learn from Sodom and Gomorrah. We can learn from Jonah and Nineveh. We can learn from a lot of unbelievers if their illustration is instructive for our application in walking in the light and glorifying Jesus Christ. So uh, maybe it shouldn't be as, as uh, shocking or surprising as, as I'm making it out to be. All right, who is a steward? What is a steward? I've said this many times. We'll say it again. The steward manages another's household. A steward manages another's household. That's what a steward does. The steward does not manage his own household. You cannot be your own steward. You can be your own master. You can be your own lord, your own kurios, so you have sovereignty in your household, or you delegate stewardship responsibilities to somebody else. You cannot be a self-steward. So the steward manages another's household. Oikonomos is your basic noun. There's some cognate forms as well, um, but we'll just stick with the basic noun here today. It has 10 uses in the New Testament. Oikonomos. O i k o n o m o s. Number 3623 is the strongest Concordance number. Oikos is your word for house. Namas is your word for law. So house law. What is the law of the house? See, how is the house managed? Under no what principles does it operate? All right. Oika namas. In fact, if uh, as it filters through Latin between Greek and English, the OI diphthong becomes that, you remember that kind of a combined OE ligature letter where that you, you squish an O together with an E? You ever seen those? in old English comes from the Latin and occasionally you can still see it today, but I'm very rare that you see it today. But yeah, squish your O and your E together into your O E um, ligature. And O E uh, K O N O M Y you have Oeconomy, which is our English word economy. Okay? So think about it. and that's by the way, the nomia ending, N O M I A is your feminine noun ending, oikonomia is our English word, economy. And think about the economy that you operate under, all right? Your household has an economy of whatever sort. It might be meager, might be extravagant, might be in between somewhere, middle class, whatever it is. Uh, your family, my family, Michael Dell's family, every household has an economy of whatever sort. And that is how we operate. That is how we operate financially, how we operate legally, how we operate uh, in, in a family sense. And so what kind of economy do we have? Right now, the economy of God's dealings on planet Earth is the local church economy. It used to be the economy of Israel that God used as his stewards on this earth to be the uh, custodians of his revealed scripture, to be the ambassadors of his kingdom, to be his, the uh, visible representatives of his righteousness among human beings on this earth. It used to be the economy of Israel that did that. Now it's the economy of the church that reveals God's household, that manages God's household. So this is our term, and it's all throughout here. In its noun form, its adjective form, its verbal form, uh, the verb is oikonomeo, to administer the affairs of a house. The, um, as I said, the noun form is oikonomia, and here we have the, uh, the steward himself. So the steward manages another's household. I knew it. I told myself I wanted to have my software up and running, and then I convinced myself that I didn't, and so I didn't start it. And now uh, I find out that I was right after all. So point one, we actually, if I I probably don't need to illustrate this as thoroughly, but it's it's worth doing so occasionally. Um, examples, if you want a biblical example, Genesis 39, Joseph and Potiphar's house. All right, Joseph and Potiphar's house. And so while I'm waiting for the software to load, let's turn there. Genesis 39. And, and the only reason I'm reluctant to use this as an illustration is simply because the, the, uh, the, in the Septuagint translation of this Hebrew text, the uh, Septuagint translators did not use the oikonomia vocabulary. All right, so the stewardship term does not appear in the Greek Septuagint translation of the text. But overwhelmingly, the, the concept is here. There's no question that, that uh, Joseph was a steward over Potiphar's house. And so you read this, that um, after he bought him out of uh, slavery, and his master, his Lord, saw that the Lord was with him, in verse 3, reading from Genesis 39 and 3, and how Yahweh caused all that Joseph did to prosper in his hand so Joseph found favor in his sight as far as we know Potiphar's not saved but he has a he has a recognition of what benefits him and he says man everything Joseph touches works out great i'm going to put him in charge and so he made him overseer over his house and All that he owned, he put in his charge. See, that is the definition of what a steward is. Someone who has charge over the household affairs of somebody else. So it came about from the time he made him overseer in his house over all that he owned that uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So this is what we teach when we teach the doctrine of uh, blessing by association and how it is you know Christian companies can be blessed if they have employees they have coworkers they have people in their business that are being blessed by the Lord so their company's being blessed not because they're smart or making good business decisions or have the the best widget in town they're actually blessed by association because God wants them to stay in business because he's providing for those Christians that are working for him there see as far as that goes, Gary Williams used to always laugh. He didn't mind at all when, when, uh, people, you know, filthy rich people, uh, uh, unbelievers or wicked people made all that kinds of money. He didn't mind that at all because he figured that gave them the, the disposable income to hire carpenters like him, you know, and so he can come along and build a wine rack or build some kind of a thing and, and, uh, God was providing for him. And if along the way, so, you know, some unbeliever or wicked person gets filthy rich, oh well, it's, it's only earthly money anyway, big deal as far as that goes. Anyway, you're familiar with the rest of the story here in Genesis 39. This is when Mrs. Potiphar comes along and, and uh, tries to seduce him. And he, uh, he's he got a tremendous testimony here when he says, I, I can't do that. You're the only thing the master didn't give me, <laughs> right? In the house, in the field of all his possessions. you know, I, I'm in charge of everything except you, right? And you belong to him. And a tremendous uh, maturity and godliness on the part of a... a Teenager here, probably. I don't know how old he is, but a young man who, uh, if uh, you know, you consider in a foreign country, a slave. Uh, not only is he away from home, but he's in another country, and who's going to know, right? His, is his dad going to find out? Is his mom going to find out? Who's going to know? You know, and and why should he be a a faithful? Yahweh worshiper he's living in the land of Egypt now you know you'd think there's no shortage of excuses why a carnally minded young man who was all you know hot and excited over sexual stuff he could just go ahead and, and sleep with her but he doesn't and it's a tremendous testimony to how Jacob raised him and how Joseph feared the Lord and how he worshiped him in in the priestly function of what they were doing all right well that's the illustration there I um let me read from Josephus and his antiquities And uh, let's go ahead and close all those out. And I meant to, uh, I knew I wanted to preload this before class started and then I lost track of what was going on. So Josephus, that's the Greek text. Let's bring up the English text. And we'll bring up the Antiquities. Josephus was uh, a Pharisee, a soldier, rose to the rank of general in the Roman legions, was actually on hand to observe the destruction of Jerusalem and documented it all. And um, his uh, testimony is quite interesting, particularly as he um, corroborates so much of the Biblical vocabulary. What did I say? 12.196. That should do it. Okay. And all I'm doing with this is simply uh, illustrating the role of a steward. And so this takes place in between the Old Testament and New Testament and the events that he's writing about with John Hyrcanus and uh, the political powers in charge of... Jerusalem. So um, when one told him that Ptolemy had a son just born and that all the principal men of Syria and the other countries subjected to him were to keep a festival on account of the child's birthday and went away in haste with great uh, retinues to Alexandria. He was himself indeed hindered from going by old age, but he made trial of his sons, whether any of them would be willing to go to the king. And when the elder sons uh, excused themselves for going and said they were not courtiers, Uh, good enough for such conversation, and advised him to send their brother Hyrcanus. He gladly hearkened to their advice and called Hyrcanus and asked him whether he would uh, go to the king, and and, uh, he promised that he would go. And upon his promise, and saying that he uh, should not want much money for the journey, because he would uh, live moderately, what a different story, huh? (laughs) Quite a bit different from the prodigal son, who said, give me my share of the inheritance, I'm going to go live like a king. But John Hyrcanus said that he would go and that he would live modestly and he would not need that many talents, uh, that 10,000 drachma would be sufficient. He was pleased with his son's prudence. So after a little while, the son advised his father not to send his presents to the king from, from thence, uh, but to give him a letter to his steward at Alexandria. This is, what, this is the illustration of what we're highlighting, uh, that the, the, this, this king in Jerusalem has a steward in not just right there to manage his household in jerusalem and israel but he's got stewards in different towns in different uh, places around the roman empire and so send a, a letter to your steward in alexandria that you might furnish him with money for purchasing what should be most excellent and most precious so you know don't buy don't do your birthday present shopping here and carry it with you go there buy locally and and so forth so um Thinking that the expense of ten talents would be enough for presents to be made to the king, and commending his son as giving him good advice, he wrote to Arion, his steward that managed all his money matters at Alexandria, which money was not less than three thousand talents on his account. A staggering amount. It's it's a, it's it's an Amazing thing to consider. It'd be like uh, you know today's modern uh, investment brokers and the uh, the billions of dollars that they have under management in their in their hedge funds or in their in their main investment accounts and so forth. And every uh, investment fund is is rated on the basis of their uh, capitalization and the amount of uh, capital they have under management and and uh, different things that happen there, their portfolio value. Well, here's Arion with 3,000 talents uh, on account, and that's simply the steward in Alexandria. <laughs> what do the other stewards have available in the different places and the different connections? You know, What about the stewards that are in Rome and the stewards that... And, of course, you've got your public stewards, and then you have your not-so-public stewards. your under under-the-table financers when you really need some dirty, quick money that Rome isn't supposed to know about kind of a thing. Uh, amazing how uh, the ancient world is so much like... Uh, like ours, or maybe we're like them. I imagine we learn from them to get even more insidious today. So, um, for Joseph sent the money he received in Syria to Alexandria, and when the day appointed uh, for payment of the taxes to the king came, he wrote to Arion to pay them. So when the son had asked his father uh, for a letter to his steward and had received it, he made haste to Alexandria And when he was gone, his brethren wrote to all the king's friends that they should destroy him. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, when he gets to town, go ahead and kill him. All right. Wonderful family. Great great reunions. They loved one another. Good stuff happening there. All right. So anyway, that's the illustration of a steward. All right. A steward manages the affairs of another. And if it's a steward for a king, then the steward's responsibilities almost approach the level of, of national sovereignty itself. For example, as we have in uh, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, there's a steward there in Gondor who is not at all happy about the idea of Aragorn coming and claiming the, the throne. Because as long as there's no king coming back, well, then uh, the steward runs the thing, right? You understand that. All right, so that's the background for our illustration today, our parable today. One thing you want to keep in mind, what do we learn from 1 Corinthians 4.2? Stewardship demands faithfulness. Stewardship demands faithfulness. Because stewardship is not a lifetime appointment. Stewardship demands faithfulness. Moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.2. Faithfulness. Alright? And this steward in our story today, in Luke 16, was not faithful. And so he was in the process of being fired. We want to understand that. Now... The church, you are a steward So, insofar as you are a part of the body of Christ. The stewardship is not vested in you individually, but vested in the body of Christ corporately. I hope you understand that. So when we talk today about the difference between a faithful Christian and a, and a faithless Christian, are they both stewards? All right. Well, The truth is, neither one of them is personally a steward because the stewardship is vested in the body of Christ. It's the bride, the body, the church universal that holds the stewardship in this current age. And so you are only operating within that stewardship function only so far as you are faithful in the execution of your Christian way of life. I hope that makes sense. Okay. So don't think that, uh, you know, uh, in the idea of a fired steward that a loser Christian today can somehow have his stewardship revoked because he's not himself a steward. He's in a corporate body that is the steward today. Does that make sense? All right. Because I think some people view stewardship as an individual activity rather than the corporate activity of the, uh, the body of Christ. So stewardship demands faithfulness. It demands faithfulness. And if you are not faithful in your Christian walk, well, then you are not going to be fully engaged in or engaged at all in the stewardship responsibilities of the body of Christ in this age. All right. Now, secondly, point B, the rich Lord is called a rich man in some verses. He's called a Lord in other verses. So I combine them to just simply call him the rich Lord, the plusios Curios. The rich Lord gives the steward a deadline for dismissal. And accountability, he says, you are losing your stewardship. Your services are no longer required. All right. Uh, And whatever the deadline is, whatever short duration it is, if it's the close of the current fiscal year or the close of the current, uh, you know, recording uh, reporting quarter for the IRS, whatever it is. All right. His uh, contract is not going to be reviewed, uh, renewed. And so uh, he will be replaced and has to face an audit. He has to hand over his books to the new steward to evaluate. All right, and this again is a a feature of the ancient world. Stewards were sometimes embezzlers and uh, could make uh, quite a bit of fortune for themselves, just as long as their master didn't find out about it. They were actually encouraged to. They were welcomed to. We're going to study that. The uh, when they took their master's money to invest it and to make a return on it, they were allowed to profit from that return, just so long as the master profited from the return as well. They got a percentage. They got a share, like your um, investment uh, portfolio investment uh, advisors get today. They get a certain uh, commission based on their uh, managing of the of the accounts. I I I read about this. I'm not speaking from personal knowledge. I've just read some uh Tom Clancy thrillers and other things. Alright. You guys are gonna walk out of here thinking that uh there's some kind of foundation that's been established for the pastor's personal uh <laughs> management of uh the the uh, the Bolander billions. All right. The rich Lord gives the steward a deadline for dismissal and accountability. Now, it's not clear from verse two when he just simply says you're fired. Uh, But it becomes clear in the following verses that there is a little bit of delay in when the reporting has to take place. And that's not unusual. Keep in mind, we're we're modern and we're we're used to, uh, well, just simply uh, bring up the database and get a printout. Right. You know, get a spreadsheet or, or what have you. You know, the. Um, the uh, books, the ledgers, uh, the physical ledgers may have been available locally, but there would have been other outstanding uh, things involved, including contracts that would have had as uh, scrolls would have to travel from town to town, commodities that would have to travel from town to town, and uh, in many cases, the commodity training that took place the uh, the literal wheat didn 't actually physically move anywhere but uh, records of that we did have to move from place to place. So a scroll detailing, uh, you know, a 100 measures of barley or something uh, would have to make it from one location to another location in order to be legally uh, recorded and binding in, uh, in that. So um, like today, if you, if you float a check today where the check is written and it goes out in the mail and it takes a couple of days in the mail to get where it's going and then to get cleared from your bank kind of a thing, um you know, nowadays it there's not much of a delay at all. Nowadays it's almost instantaneous other than the two days it takes for the envelope to travel in the mail. Um, but, boy, in the ancient world it could be days, weeks, months before uh, the scroll, paper, papyrus documentation actually reached the recording house where the uh, the ledgers were kept. Not just the personal ledgers, but the public ledgers of uh, many of these commodity trading uh, houses so there is a delay in verse 2 when he says what is this i hear about you give an accounting of your management and it does not appear immediately from that verse that it's going to be a delay but obviously it is when you examine these subsequent verses for you can no longer be my manager and, then, and so the manager has time to consider what shall i do since my manager my, my, my master my curious lord is taking the management away from me and he has to evaluate. What's he going to do after Wall Street? You know, is he just going to throw himself out a window on the 55th floor of some downtown New York high rise? Or what's he going to do? He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. He's not exactly suited to uh, blue collar manual labor. And, uh, and yet he's barred. He's just lost his um, stockbroker credentials, as it were. He, he, he can't work uh, in, in this field any longer. Who's going to trust him? Uh, when, he's, when he's fired for cause and word gets around to the other lords, um, no one's going to trust this guy. He's an unrighteous steward. Who, who wants this guy? So he's damaged goods. So he's uh, not strong enough to dig. He's not physically constituted for the manual labor. And uh, I'm ashamed to beg. The idea that uh, because he's lived this lifestyle among the, among the rich for so long, the idea now that he's destitute and has to beg is, is unthinkable. So that's when he comes up with this plan. I know what I shall do. And so he summons each of his master's debtors. Now, this, by the way, would also have been a, pra- a process, conceivably, in uh, the audit that would take place. That all of the creditors have to come in. All of these account receivables have to be documented and tabulated in order for the complete um, spreadsheet to be laid out there. And so summing them is not... Unusual, part of the time, the transition necessary. Uh, But the backroom dealing or the under the table dealing that takes place here for a very quick uh, cash resolution is uh, is what's unusual. And it is what the master praises him for, actually, making these uh, revised contract uh, modifications. Right. Like we're talking about in the news today, these uh, negotiated, revised uh, mortgage contracts or uh, renegotiated, revised uh, legal contracts of, of various sorts. See, they're all illegal, but if uh, if a judge signs off on them and and if the executive branch is is driving it, well, then who's going to prosecute the illegal activity, right? So uh, that's the way it goes. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> all right. So once again, you're fired. You're under a deadline now. Dismissal and accountability. Which caused the steward to consider, and this is how I'm phrasing it, how I want you to think about it, his post-stewardship circumstances. His post-stewardship circumstances. If you phrase it that way, I think you'll have a good handle on what it is the Lord is encouraging us to do. How it is that we have something to learn from, from this guy. Because I think it's unusual. I think it's actually... More common than not, that Christians today never give two thoughts about their post-stewardship circumstances. Am I wrong? You're sitting there in shocked disbelief. Most Christians today, I'm not talking about Bible doctrinal underteaching disciple Christians, I'm talking about the bulk of Christianity today does not give any thought, or very much at all, to glory, to eternity, to things after this physical earth. They don't think about things eternal. They're not fixing their mind on the things above, but they're wrapped up in the here and the now. And that's the stony ground Christian. That's the thorny ground Christian. That is the believer that's not running with endurance the race set before him. That's the believer that's not laying aside the sin and the uh, that so easily entangles us and the encumbrance that so easily entangles us. And so what Jesus Christ is saying here when he says we can learn from this unrighteous Steward. See what he's doing. He is considering and providing for his post-stewardship circumstances. He is making the right kind of friends. And he's making sure that those friends view him favorably as those are the friends he's going to be associated with after his stewardship is complete. And I find it is an interesting parallel. who are you going to be associating with in glory for all eternity? and it's it's saddening so many times when believers are at odds with other believers and fighting one another and full of schisms and divisions, we're supposed to love one another. and when why what why is it that two brothers in Christ can't demonstrate that towards one another? And you think, well, goodness, good graciousness, what are you talking about? you're gonna you're gonna spend all eternity with these people. You ought to start now learning how to get along with one another, <laughs> right? Uh, goodness, what are you going to do then? Say, well, it'll be different then because they won't have their sin nature anymore, and they'll be they'll be uh, they won't be the jerks they are now. They're going to be perfect when they get there. Unlike me, of course, who's already perfect here and now, right? <laughs> right? That's the prideful attitude. It's wrong. You're going to be perfect too when you get there. So start working on it now. Uh, How about undertaking the perfection process now through your own humility testing and growth and and, uh, fulfillment of work assignments. Work hard now so that the fellowship then is going to be a blessing. This man here is working hard now so that in his post... um, stewardship, fellowship opportunities, they'll have open invitations to go into these homes. They won't uh, stone him on sight. They won't stick the guards on him. They'll welcome him in. And they're like, hey, my buddy, come on in. Have dinner with me. Spend time with me. You're the guy that cut me a 50% slack on all that wheat I owed. And he's fostering future friendships. Now, he's doing so in a filthy, underheaded, carnal kind of way, Of course. What do you expect? That's who he is. But we're to learn from what he's doing so that we can make our own application in the proper way. Who who am I making friends with and why am I making friends with him? Who am I giving gifts to? Who am I doing good things for and why am I doing good things for them? Because I want something from them? Or because they're a royal family of God, part of the body of Christ, I'm going to spend glory, all eternity with them in glory. And I want to foster a friendship now. Hmm. So that's what we're dealing with here. Point C. The steward negotiated shrewd business deals. Oh, this guy's slick. He's a modern-day Jacob, the supplanter, Right. You know, give me the speckled sheep. Give me the striped sheep. Give me the black sheep. You know, every, every business deal that Jacob did when Laban thought he was getting the better of him, uh, Jacob got the better of Laban. Except for, of course, when he got tricked into marrying the wrong daughter and then Laban got a little bit of a laughter back on that. But anyway, here's this unrighteous steward and the business negotiations he's conducting. This guy makes Bernie Madoff look like, a, a, you know, a chump. And he's going to get these ahead of the accountability deadline. He's going to make sure that the books are straight before the master sees them. Hmm. Which I think is interesting. So he summoned each of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first. He summons all of them, but he summons each of them in turn. Right, So you don't get 30 of them all together and have them all corroborating with one another. You separate them out. You don't let the other ones know the deal that the other ones are getting. But that's not to your advantage. Brings them each one in turn. He says to the first one, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, a hundred measures of oil. That's what he owes the master. Does the master know that? Probably not. OK, and here's the difference between what is owed and what is borrowed. OK, and depending on what the length, the term of, of, of debt is and what the length of the agreement is. All right. And in, in some cases too, keep in mind, if this master is a Roman senator, then some of these commodity trades are actually illegal for the senator to be involved in. And if it gets publicly exposed, he can be tried in bribery and corruption courts, and it can ruin the, the Romans' political career. So uh, some of this may be under the table stuff that stewards are doing without the knowledge of the master in different ways. So uh, he owes him a hundred. We don't know. It doesn't say what the original borrowing was. Maybe he only borrowed maybe he borrowed 80. He borrowed 80 and promised to repay a 100. At a certain deadline. Or maybe he borrowed 40. Or maybe he borrowed 20. We're not told what the original terms were. We're just told what the revised term is. And the revised term is a 50% markdown from the 100 owed to the 50. So he says, uh, I owe 100 measures of oil. So he said, take your bill. In other words, this is relinquished, debt-free, off the invoice. Uh, The account receivable is now closed. Take your bill and sit down quickly. Quickly. Not when it's due. Today, payable immediately. And write 50. All right. Now, again, we don't know. Did he originally borrow 60, in which case now he's only paying back 50 and and making a great bargain on it? Did he borrow 40 originally and intended to repay 100? We don't know. And we also don't know how much the manager knew about. Because... And you, of course, would never do this. Let me explain some of the devious thinking here. Um, you're the steward for the for the guy, the the big boss, king guy. And, and so you say, all right, I'm going to loan, I'm going to loan 40 measures of wheat or oil, whatever it is, measures of oil here. I'm going to loan 40 over here to Fred. Master says, all right, go ahead. May not, master may not even know. May just read the, the ledger book every so often, right? And so the 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 steward loans 40. And is guaranteed a repayment back of a hundred, okay, but what he tells the master is that he loaned fifty and he's going to get back eighty. See how that works? <laughs> so he actually loaned out ten fewer than he said he was loaning out, so he's skimming just ten right off the bat right out of there because he's only loaning forty, but he tells the master he's loaning fifty and then. He's going to get back 100, but he's told the Master he's only going to get back 80. You see what I'm saying? So he's actually skimming both directions. <laughs> because now he's got, he's got a free 10 off the top that he can loan to somebody else or just sell it for cash or do whatever he wants to do with it, keep it. Um, and then on the return, he can document the return and then, uh, again, skim the profits there as well. So whatever the case is here, when he collects the 50... When he collects the 50, um, is that cash he's going to run away with? Or is it simply uh, balancing the ledger so that he is not crucified for his uh, fiduciary uh, malfeasance? All right. Because keep in mind, if this is a Roman context, uh, a Roman slave, most of the stewards were, were Greek slaves. They were mathematicians, economists, very educated Greek slaves that were selected to be um, stewards in a noble Roman household um, but he's subject to, to hanging on a cross for this Okay, <laughs> he, this is, the, this is uh, great motivation for, uh, for keeping your stewards honest is the, the threat of crucifixion if they get caught so um, whatever the case he's able to get 50 now why does he ask for 50 from the first guy but he only gets uh, and he gets 80 from the second guy look at the second guy He said to another, and how much do you owe? You know, and and this question is interesting because the steward knows the answer to all this. He knows how much they owe. But he's acting like he doesn't. How much do you owe again? Remind me. Playing dumb. Um, And he said 100 measures of wheat. So he said, well, take your bill and write 80. So why does he only get a 20% discount? The other guy got a 50% discount. Again, I think it's part of the shrewdness of this steward. He knows the cash that these people have on hand. He knows what they can fork over. He knows what they'll go for, see, that uh, with an immediate settlement at a discount, they're actually going to make money in the long run. Rather than paying the higher amount down the road, they can pay a lower amount now and walk away from it. And he happens to know that, that customer number one has 50 on hand and customer two actually has 80 on hand. He knows what he can get and when he can get it because he needs it now. Maximizing his return and, and still getting something out of these guys. There might be some of these guys that uh, down the road aren't going to pay anything back. They're going to default down the road. So you're better off getting a discount now instead of nothing overall later on. All right, so his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. And this is uh, interesting. McGee, J. Avon McGee, even ponders, um, <laughs> how did the uh, rich guy get rich in the first place, right? <laughs> in the years prior to hiring this guy for his steward, uh, how did rich guy make his money back in the day, right? And uh, McGee went so far as to speculate that Uh, It was probably through a very similar means, through very similar practices, forms, and fashions, being able to manipulate people and provide what they want, see. And now, in this, is there anything illegal? Probably. Anything immoral? Probably, yeah. Unethical? Certainly. But was there anything... Involuntary? Was there force applied in any way? Was there anything criminally violent in any of this? None at all. The, uh, the steward made him a deal. Says, take your bill, write fifty. The guy went for it. Said, yeah, that's a good trade. I'll take that. Made it made the other guy an offer. Take your bill and write out 80. guy made an offer, said all right, I'll take that. He collected on each of these, he had the shrewdness to, to price it, to price the commodities appropriately, to identify the customer need accurately. And he maximized the return with the right buyer at the right price, at the right time, in the right way. See, it's actually, it's a, it's a little essay on capitalism here. <laughs> What's going on? All right. Because how, uh, how much is a bushel of wheat worth? How much is a gallon of milk worth? Whatever the customer will pay for it, right? And if the customer will pay more, then the the merchant raises the price. But if the customer won't pay that, if the customer will only pay less, then the merchant lowers the price. And competing merchants may raise or lower as they compete with one another. And it's all of everything, everything, this is something our president needs to learn, in free market economics, capitalism is about the voluntary exchange. It is a contract between two parties, a seller and a buyer. And whatever that price is, whatever that price is, in fact, our Constitution is mandated to honor private contracts between individuals. And forbidden, our government's forbidden to step in and and intrude in that. They do it all the time, but it, it shouldn't happen. We should have the freedom to engage in contracts with one another for whatever it is. So... You know, do I, uh, do I resent uh, Alex Rodriguez for making $100 million playing baseball? No. Not at all. Because New York Yankees were willing to pay it. <laughs> right? That's their business. That's not my business. But see, that's the thing. People get all into other people's business. Oh, that's not right. Well, a baseball player shouldn't make $100 million while a school teacher makes, you know, 30000 or 50000 whatever a school teacher makes. Okay. And they say, it's not right, it's not fair. Now I'm getting all political on you today, I'm over time. What I'm trying to illustrate, though, and what this passage is illustrating, we'll get back to this text next week, but when party A and party B choose to do business with each other on the terms they choose to, assuming that there's no coercion or crime or violence or there's not actual extortion going on or there's not uh, you know anything... Uh, illegal about this. Hey, do you want to clear a hundred bushel debt for 50? The guy says, yeah, I'll do that. All right. Then you have a mutually agreed to covenant contract between two parties. And our God is a God that honors contracts. He writes contracts. say so We need to learn from these principles. There's very practical things on a daily basis that we can make application of uh, in different ways. Well, anyway, we'll come back on this because the master is praising him. And for his shrewdness, and we need to learn what shrewdness is. We're supposed to be shrewd as serpents, yet harmless as doves. So there's an application for us there. We've got to have some degree of shrewdness. Because we can't be blithering, innocent, idiot. You know, we're not in the age of innocence anymore. We're not naked in the garden. We're not to be innocent of Satan's devices. We have to have a certain shrewdness for the functioning in the church age. But at the same time, we're to remain harmless as doves. And that's our handicap that does not allow us to be uh, the the bloodthirsty, ruthless business deals that uh, that uh, the unbeliever is in his practices. So anyway, got a good jump on it further than I thought we'd get. Uh, we didn't get to uh, hell. That's coming up in the later part of the chapter. We'll get there. Rich man and Lazarus, and uh, in Hades, lifting up their eyes. So uh, we have good things coming up. Lord willing, rapture pending. Maybe we'll reach hell sometime Christmas time. Probably we'll we'll be in Hades for Christmas. Wednesday before Christmas. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the unrighteous steward. Um, Shrewd, unrighteous, slick. Um, He'd probably thrive in in today's uh, stock market and things going on. But, Father, uh, we don't want to imitate his exact way of operating. But there's a principle we want to learn from. We need to recognize that our stewardship can be gone tomorrow. And we uh, need to be prepared to live and function in a post-stewardship reality. And who are our friends going to be when our stewardship is done? So teach us these principles. We can make immediate application. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.